Welcome to Drinking Bros, presented by GhostBed.com. Sit back, relax, and grab a fucking drink. Yeah, welcome to Drinking Bros, kids. Got a great show uh, on Monday <laughs> afternoon. We are joined uh, by teenager Chloe Cole, who uh, recently detransitioned and is suing the doctors who performed the gender-affirming surgery uh, on her. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you, Chloe? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, We appreciate you joining us. Uh, The the media has labeled you as a right-wing media darling right now. But to me, uh, when we're talking about transitioning, it is such an important decision. I don't really see what role politics plays in this. It's really a bipartisan issue. I mean, they do call me like a right-wing show or whatever, but I mean... My supporters are from all walks of life, all different kinds of views, both from a lot of old school Democrats and a lot of a lot of Republicans and people who are kind of in the middle. Yeah, I, I don't really get uh, why that is right now or, or why it should be a political uh, you know, firestorm on, on either side. To me, you're a child who made a very, very important life decision. Uh, and then you looked back on it, you regretted it, and you're trying to change your life. Um, I kind of want to go through uh, what you went through here. So it says here you started puberty blockers and testosterone at age 13, uh, underwent a double mastectomy at 15, and detransitioned from male to female at 16. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And what was the decision behind that? Uh, Because I have children right now uh, who are not far from 13 years old. At 13 years old, what was the decision and who helped inform you of this decision on what would ultimately change your life? So a little bit of background. I mean, from a pretty young age, I was actually, all things considered, pretty much a girly girl. I, I was kind of in between on being that and like a traditional tomboy. I mean, I'm the youngest of five siblings and uh, got two older brothers, two older sisters. Um so I kind of had influence from from either gender. I mean, I, I I liked my my skirts and pink and dolls and things like that. But I also I like playing playing with uh with toy guns and video games with my older brothers. And um, I am on the spectrum. I do I did growing up struggle a bit with socializing and making friends, especially with other girls my age. I found that I really I fit in more with the the boys and the girls and. Um, as I got older, I kind of started to wonder, like, why is this? Like, is there something wrong with me? It wasn't until after I stopped transitioning, actually, that I got a diagnosis for, for autism. And um, I feel like that played a role in um, my later onset of gender dysphoria, which didn't happen until I was about 12 years old. Um, after I started using social media, actually, you know, I... um I wasn't very close to other women growing up and I would often hear things like, Oh, being a woman is just so terrible. Like you, you hit puberty and then you have to deal with like all this stuff happening to your body. Like you, you start getting these periods and they're so painful and terrible. And then you're able to get pregnant and it sucks. And then, then there's, there's childbirth, which is so painful. And then you go through menopause and it's all just, 
just so terrible and nobody ever talked about the good things that really came with that and i kind of saw this amplified on social media you know i got my first phone at 11 and i started using um instagram mostly which is where i got most of these ideas from and i mean alongside of that i was seeing like a lot of um a lot of like feminist content which kind of kind of said the same things and it was also like it got a little bit scary i mean i was being told like oh your rights are being taken away as a woman your reproductive rights are being stolen from you and uh i would also alongside that um see a lot of lgbtq content um a lot of a lot of um a lot of adolescents and young adults who identified as you know like a certain sexuality or as a certain gender identity like non-binary or as the opposite sex and you know i was kind of at an age where i was kind of starting to wonder like who am i like what's my role in the world what am what who am i attracted to and then eventually i started to wonder like after some time being exposed to stuff it was like what's my gender identity like am i even a woman and you know because i was i was a tomboy i liked having my hair short i was kind of on the athletic side had some bigger shoulders and a little more muscle in my body and um i i also had some body image issues because of that actually like i grew up in the age of like thick curvy bottom heavy things like that and i would see a lot of these unrealistic images of women online i would you know i would like compare myself to this and would be like why do i not look like this there there's something wrong with me like i feel like i don't look I just felt like I wasn't enough as a girl and that I would never that I would never be pretty and that I would never match up to this to any of these ideals and that I would that I re- I even thought that I actually looked better off as as a boy and I mean there are a lot of factors that kind of played into the development of my my gender dysphoria um and you know one day I decided like you know, I'm not really like any any of the other girls, and I think I might actually be a boy. And you know, I started to play around with my expression a little. I started cutting my hair shorter um, gradually as as time went on. Um, I started buying more clothing from you know the boys' department, and uh, eventually I came out to some people who I was closer to at school, and then my older sister. And eventually, my my parents. I wrote a I wrote a letter to them, and I left it on the uh, the coffee table. Um, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I knew it was some. I knew it'd be kind of a shock for them to to hear that from their own kid. Um, and I kind of wanted to allow them some time to think it over before they um, before we had that conversation face to face. And. Um, I mean, initially they were, they were surprised. They were, they were shocked. And Mm -hmm. I mean, they knew I was like a bit of a tomboy, but they weren't really, I mean, no parent would really expect to hear this. I don't think. No, Um, not not at all. Yeah. And and being a parent myself, um, you know, one, I can imagine how difficult it was (laughs) from from your side to do this Two, I can understand how difficult it is as a parent to read something like this. Um, What was their first response to you? And what was the first conversation they had after you uh, had given them this letter? I mean, they wanted to to support me, but they were also concerned, like where these feelings were coming from. They wanted to get to the bottom of it, so they um, we decided that I would start seeing a therapist. 
so it's it started because, seeing yeah. a therapist f- first um mm. and and in therapy this is you know relatively new here what we're we're going through and what we're seeing here within the last 10 to 15 years um was this therapist suggested by your parents or by a doctor a licensed physician who's the one that, um, that told you to go see a therapist well my parents thought of it as like a mental health issue so they wanted to kind of see where it stemmed from um i don't remember i was a kid at the time so i couldn't really make this i couldn't really like seek out a therapist for myself and i, I they may they might have like gone through a doctor i think they just went through they may have, they might have just went through my um our healthcare provider to do it i'm not really sure how that process was but um i mean by by law in california if you're a therapist and you have a patient who is experiencing gender dysphoria the only thing you can really do is affirm this patient in their identity you can't suggest like any alternatives to transition and so i never really even knew that there is like an alternative to to transitioning for my gender dysphoria and i was kind of just allowed to believe that i was actually a boy which obviously wasn't true but i mean i kind of over time fell into a delusion and it was never really it was never really questioned and um I feel like living a lie for so long eventually led to me um, kind of going into a downward spiral. But um, so my first therapist never really, uh, he never really did anything. It was just kind of like I told him like my preferred name and that I wanted to be a boy. And he was kind of just like, okay. And he never really addressed like any of my background, like what was going on at home or at school. So. Um, I actually was dissatisfied with him after after some time. Um, eventually, he stopped. Uh, I don't know what happened. Like either he got like fired or he transferred somewhere else. And then I had a new therapist, and I also had like a gender specialist who I think was the one who did the diagnosis for gender dysphoria. Either that, or she was just the person who kind of like referred me between um, like other physicians and other services, but. Um, so I got the diagnosis and I was like, great, I already know that I have this condition and I kind of want to get things started because before I came out to my parents, um, I did a little bit of research on gender dysphoria and transitioning. And at the time, there wasn't nearly as much information available on transitioning as there is now and certainly not anybody really speaking against it, especially in children. Um, and the way... It was presented to me not only by the resources I had online, like a bit like both social media websites, not really the most reliable, but also like official medical resources and also my own healthcare provider. It was kind of like, oh yeah, dysphoria is um can't be the only means of treating it is by transitioning and transgender people actually are the sex that they claim to be. And um so I started, you know, I saw this as like, I have a condition and it needs to be treated. And I was convinced that I would, through doing this, I would become more whole, become my real self, the version of myself that I envisioned in my head. Um, and so I, I started telling my parents, like, I really want to go on hormones. And they're like, okay, so we, we, we want to be supportive of you, but we don't understand why you are pushing on this so hard. Like if you're you're 13, you it it can wait a little bit. I think I think we should wait until 
you know, you're really capable of making this decision. Um, and at first, I kind of just brushed off as like, oh, they're, they don't really understand. They're, you know. Um, and so at, a, at another appointment with uh, either, either one of my therapists or gen, the gender specialists, they were actually told that, um, you know, transitioning is the way of treating dysphoria. And if I wasn't allowed to go through with it as I wanted to, then I would be at risk of suicide. So they basically coerced my parents into allowing this. So at any point in this process, did any adult, whether uh, parent or, or professional medical person, say, hey, maybe, you know, this isn't the right thing to do? Or to wait, uh, to wait until perhaps you're 18 years old, um, because this is a huge decision to make at that age. Yeah, so the majority of the adults around me didn't really speak against this, but I did. The first endocrinologist who I was referred to when I was seeking hormones and blockers actually didn't allow me to go on them. He said that there might be concerns for my brain development, like there isn't enough research on this area, especially in children. Um, But pretty much immediately after, I was just referred to another endocrinologist who, after about two to three appointments, got me on hormones. And then one of my older brothers actually, um, you know, for a few years he had been, he was in the Navy and he was out stationed somewhere out of state, I think. And so um, one day um, when I was, I think I was about maybe like two or three months on hormones by this point, um, I was staying in a hotel room. I was on vacation with my mom and dad and they decided to, uh, to call my older brother. And he heard my voice and he was like, oh my God, why is her voice so deep? Like, mom, why, wh- what's with her voice? And she explained the situation to him. And he, he paused for a little bit and he was like, you know, most kids regret this, right? <laughs> that, that, was, that was a really uncomfortable situation. And <laughs> I, I kind of just left the room and just dismissed it as him like being transphobic or bigoted or whatever. But he, he he was right, and even if I didn't really like it that much at the time, I'm really thankful that he tried to stand his ground and try to get me in the right direction, because not a lot of other adults really did that. Why do you and, think? You know, why do you think they were pushing for this? These adults, because uh, Dan, well, I, yeah, I, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like uh, your <clears throat> gender specialist, which by the way, is that's not even a real thing. That's yeah. a that's a that's a yeah. made up job. That's like saying somebody is a misinformation specialist or a social media specialist or expert. Mm-hmm. We just use the word. I'm not expert. exactly sure what the role encompasses. Yeah, I mean it's nonsense. But <clears throat> it looks like this person, or sounds rather like this person, was just shopping for somebody to do what they wanted to do to a child. Frankly, right? Yeah, and and what's the consultation like? Um, did this stretch out over a period of days, weeks, months? Um, again, to wrap my head around. <laughs> how gigantic of a decision this is. I'm trying to narrow down a time frame of when you said, okay, I, I feel like uh, I've been diagnosed with this. And then how long until they were like, well, great, let's get you on the hormone blockers and, uh, and get you started. Yeah, it really wasn't that comprehensive, honestly. Like it didn't really go into my, my background. I can't remember much of it because it was, it was so, that's quite a long 
time ago, but I really don't remember like any. Would you, would you say under six say. months, under a year, something like that? Yeah, it was actually, um, the process was like expedited for me. It was only like a, like a matter of months between, um, my diagnosis for gender dysphoria mm -hmm. and actually getting my medicalized, I'd say maybe less than like half a year or maybe about half a year, give or take, maybe a little bit longer, but it really wasn't as comprehensive as it shouldn't have been. <clears throat> and they, they actually went, went against their own guidelines at the time in doing this. Yeah, I mean, I, they got me on hormones at, at 13 when uh, I think the minimum age then was um, like 15 or 16. Yeah, this all seems very fast and very young. Um, and your parents went along with this because the, of, of the advice of these physicians. And uh, what was the, the term that they were using? The made up uh, gender, gender dysphoria. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gender yeah. specialist. Gender yeah. specialist. Well, gender specialist, it, yes. you mean the title of the person. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's, not, that's not a real thing. Um, but your parents went along with that because they thought they were getting the best advice from licensed professionals who were so-called experts in this field. Yeah, and they, I mean, I'm their child. They wanted to help me. They loved me, and they were scared that if I didn't go through with this, I would, they told them that I would kill myself. That, that's what they told your parents? Yeah, they, they, they like, cited, like, the, like, these really faulty suicide statistics, and they were like, this could happen to your kid if you don't allow them to transition. Wow. Um, that, that's, that's pretty big to, to lay on parents about, hey, your child is going through this, and if you don't go through with it, guess what? They might kill themselves. Yeah, and I don't think I was there for this either because I didn't know about this until my, my mom and dad told me that they had this conversation just a few months ago. That, that's unbelievable. Um, so during this, you, you start going through the blockers. You start going through testosterone. Uh, your brother notices a change in your voice. Mm. And then the double mastectomy uh, at, at 15 years old. Mm -hmm. When did that get approved? And what does your family say then? I mean, what, what does your brother say? I mean, I think it's important to get into what led up to that point before that. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was maybe about, maybe a few months on testosterone and blockers, um, you know, other people at school were starting to notice the changes. I mean, they'd, they'd already been been noticing that I was like changing my presentation at school year. I was in a, I was in eighth grade at this point. And I mean, not everybody was very nice about it because it's middle school. Sure. <laughs> but um, it is kind of unusual about my case that, that I started binding after I um, got medicalized. And if you don't know, like binding is... Um, it's basically the use of either like tape or um, like a compression device or some other means of flattening the appearance of the chest in, in women or men with uh, gynecomastia. Um, you know, I, I wasn't very developed at that point. I was just 13 years old and um, I would wear like loose shirts. So I didn't think like anybody would really notice like the shape of my chest. But there was an incident in which I actually got uh, assaulted by a classmate of mine. Um, and that led me to wanting to hide my chest and becoming very conscious of the appearance of it. And so I started, I asked my mom um, to like get me 
some some binders which it's basically like a like a device that it looks like a tank top it mm-hmm. um it has compression um were you physically it or, like the for, like the chest area forgive me were you physically <laughs> or sexually assaulted by this person um the latter okay they they had um well i won't i won't go into detail about it but um Sure, I, and, you, and you don't have to. I, I just wonder if it was because of what you were going through at the time or before, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I did kind of downplay the incident in my head because it was like, you know, I, I wanted I wanted to be like a, like a boy in my head. And I was like, I just told myself to, you know, man up and kind of just not really worry about it. But it did leave a really big mark on me. And I knew I couldn't really speak out about it because, you know, the school I was going to, um, I was kind of an outcast. And even like the teachers and uh, the the staff, the office staff, weren't uh, they weren't very nice to me either. So it was kind of like I was I wasn't in, really in a situation where I felt like I would be supported. And um, you know, I I knew that if I spoke out, it would be like. They'd probably just let the kid off with like a slap on the wrist, like suspend him maybe for like a week or so, and then if he came back, he would be quite quite angry. So I I didn't want to make the situation any worse. So it was just kind of like I just threw it away. But it did it did. There was a little bit of trauma there, and uh, it was I didn't realize at the time, but it was a factor that led to me getting a mastectomy down the line. Um, and there, there were several. You, you know, I was using this. Uh, I was using this binder. This, it, you know, some people get like really bad, like chest pain or rib pain or like back pain from it. I didn't really get any of that. It was, but it was, it was pretty uncomfortable, um, despite fitting well. Um, and I would wear it while um, while working out or like swimming or, it, you know, it kind of sucked because I live like right in the middle of California, mm-hmm. where um, it gets super hot in the summer here, like. Well, like 120 on on some of the worst days, but um, I I would have to wear that in like really hot weather, and I just you know over time I got really sick of it, and you know I genuinely thought of myself as like as just another dude, I guess, and you know I, I had these things on my chest that I didn't really see any use in because you know I wanted to be a boy, and it was like. Like what's what's the point of me having these? I don't I don't want this. I want to I want to just look like another boy my age. And yeah. So, um, and in I, my sophomore year, I uh, sorry, what was that? No, and and after the mastectomy, um, did you feel more like that, or was it yeah. the opposite? I mean, you know, that part of my body was gone, so obviously I would feel less feminine. But um, you know, in my sophomore year, I. I started like um I told my my therapist like I want to I'm interested in getting the surgery and then they referred me to um a new a new specialist gender specialist who then referred me to a surgeon and there wasn't like really any vetting process there wasn't like any real like psychological assessment it was like oh well you're already this far you're already several years on hormones so you're perfectly fit for doing this at 15 years old um after my first appointment with the surgeon it was like he suggested um going to a they called it a top surgery classroom and it was for uh it took place in the hospital building and it was for um 
adolescents and their families to attend to learn more about a top surgery and basically get fed propaganda. (laughs) Um, And even like the, like the waiting room that I was in before the consultation had like picture, like books and uh, picture saving up of like surgery results. And it was, it was all the people who were fairly well into the healing process. Like no, none that were really like, more early in their healing process or like any botched surgeries because you know they're trying to advertise this gender affirming care mm-hmm. and uh you know when i attended that class it was like i was basically learning the same things that i did in the surgeon's office um but as soon as i sat down i kind of just like looked around me and i noticed uh, all the other kids that were there um all biological females, but they all, they looked really young or like they weren't very far into the, the medical process. It's like most of them looked like they weren't even on hormones yet. So it was just kind of like, um, this is, that, 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 it, it was kind of shocking because they weren't very far into the process and they're already seeking surgery. Mm-hmm. But even then, it was just kind of like, it It did kind of, I was kind of shook. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, okay, it's, you know, it's just other kids my age, like, going through the same thing. And it kind of helped to feel like it was like a normal experience and that I wasn't alone. So I did kind of brush that off. Um, I had another two or three appointments with the surgeon, one of which was just kind of like a um, like an examination and like furry further going into detail about like the like my options like the incision type that I could get and I did kind of push for like a a less invasive procedure but they were like oh no there's gonna be there's gonna be blood supply issues uh, it's experimental which I mean if we're being honest here this whole thing is experimental sure um, and so I had to get like the most um, the most common type of incision i've had some some complications from that um but you know um on the day of um i remember being in the getting wheeled into the operating room and i was kind of nervous because i mean i was pretty sure about this decision up until up when um and it was for about a few months after the surgery um but you know i was kind of nervous because it was like you know it's a big thing it's a big it's a big step mm-hmm. and uh i remember i started making like small talk with like the surgeons and nurses in there and i remember there was a there was a male nurse in the back and uh he was just kind of just kind of staring at me like i couldn't really read his facial expression at the time um but i think now it was a it was a look of like how old is this kid like yeah what have I gotten myself into? And I, I understand now. Yeah. Um, how many um, other kids were in that class with you at that time? And did they, they, did they all end up transitioning as well? Um, I mean, I wouldn't really know because I didn't know any of them personally, mm-hmm. but uh, there were about like 12 or 15 other kids in there. Um, the reason I ask is I didn't know if there was a support group or a class afterward that maybe you all attended later 
where you had your surgery, you could talk about a shared experience or something like that. Uh, so according to you, there was a class before and then nothing after, and then you never saw all these other kids again? Yeah. I was like never in any support groups because I never felt like I really needed one. I mean, I had like some some like LGBT friends online, but I mean, I never really felt the need to like kind of, I guess you'd say congregate like that. Cause it was like, I mean, I'm already this far into the process. I mean, I don't feel like I really need any support. I mean, any issues I have don't really have anything to do with it. So at least that's how I felt at the time. Um, I don't realize it, but by, by transitioning, I was actually, um, reinforcing like my other pre-existing issues or creating new ones and um it did it caused me a lot of distress and i didn't really really i didn't i didn't know this i didn't figure this out until after the fact but uh you know after my surgery after i woke up and um like i was all the all the meds wore off and i was fully conscious and i was able to like move to and from places it was like wow I feel great. This is a big step and I'm so glad it's finally over. I I felt great and I was really looking forward to the stuff after the post-healing process, you know. I wanted to be able to like not have to like wear like a shirt while swimming or working out or things like that. Um I kind of idealized like like not having like breasts or like not having to basically like being able to go out shirtless and it's it's all things considered it's not that it wasn't that great but um you know once i got home and um it was kind of comfy for a little while you know my mom had to kind of take leave to take care of me for a little bit while i was going through the process i mean i had a very limited rate range of motion in my upper body and my arms so i couldn't really i had to have assistance with um a lot of stuff at home and um there is like a after about like a like a week i think i was able to finally like take a bath take a shower and then that's kind of when reality started to set in because you know i had to start like changing my my dressings and like look down at this area of my chest that looked completely different and like i had like like these were wounds on my body that i was looking at and i had to like every night i had to i had to i had to see that and i mean showering used to showering and bathing used to be one of my favorite parts of the day because it was like you know it's it's comfortable and it's like it's time to myself i can kind of just relax and kick back but now i had like this responsibility to take care of while i was doing that and on top of that it was like it was it was just hard to look at myself like that. Like, I really don't think any kid should have to go through that. It's um, not. A, yes. a, after the surgery, how long until you went back to school? And what was the response from your classmates once you went back? Um. Well, this was um, this was over the the summer and. Um, I did kind of miss out on some social opportunities because of it. Like my friends had like parties and stuff and I just wasn't able to really go to anything because I couldn't, I couldn't leave the house. I was, 
I wasn't really in a state to be moving around like that for a little bit. And it was, it was pretty upsetting. And, you know, um, that next school year, um, are you nervous um, or are you excited to go back at that point because you've become a new person? Um, I mean, it kind of sucked because, you know, I was, it was like a, it was like a big thing that I would, that I was going through. And so it was, I thought it was just like the, the post-op process, but really it, it actually made me feel worse. And so I got, it's, it's, it's worth noting that, um, before my surgery, I actually was in a lot of distress to the point that uh, one of my doctors actually wrote like a, like a note of leave to my school. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just like completely dismissed. And, um, so by that point I already had been, um, I wasn't in the best state mentally, but now that I was dealing with like a major surgery, like a huge change in my body, it was like, and it came with like all these, all these other burdens on top of that. It was like, I was even more distressed. And when, when I went back to school, we had like, uh, restrictions for, for COVID. Gotcha. So it was like the distance learning model. And so I wasn't really, I wasn't really able to, uh, really go out and socialize really. And so I felt, I just, I felt more and more isolated from my peers and, so I, I, I ended up getting worse. And at first I thought I was just like, oh, it's just a post-op period. Like it'll get better as time goes on, but it didn't, I got <laughs> worse as, as time went on. And, um, it got to the point that it was seriously affecting like my school performance. I wasn't really like attending or really active in my, my, my classes. And, um, my grades were basically at an all-time low and it got to the point that my parents were like, this isn't going to work. Like we have to, we have to take you out of school and put you in an online only program. And so I was, so I was, um, in a considerable amount of distress by this point, I was, I basically had no interaction with the outside world because at this point, um, not only because I wasn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't in public school anymore, but I was also, uh, like we had, there was like, um, we had quarantine um, restrictions in place. And so um, one of the classes I took um, in my, in this online only um, um, program was a psychology class. And um, there was like a, a lesson on maternity and how things like uh like physical affection um and especially breastfeeding play a role in the bond between a mother and her infant and you know before this point i never really thought about like being a mother being a parent or how that might look for me um they told me before my surgery, like, you won't be able to breastfeed after this. But, you know, I didn't, that didn't really matter to me at the time because it was like, you know, I was, I was a kid. I wasn't thinking about being a parent or what that, what that would really look like. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, I'm a, I'm a boy. I, w- I wouldn't do that. Of course not. <laughs> but men don't do that. But, you know, I really, I started to realize like, 
this is what I took away from myself and potentially my future children. So you think and that was the that was the I point? I didn't know this. That was the point where the regret, I guess, started to set in. Yeah, you know, before before that point, I was actually starting to miss like being pretty and having a more feminine form. And I actually, you know, by this point, I was on I was on cross sex hormones for maybe about two to three years, and um, I didn't even look like a woman. Like I was, I was, I was growing out my hair a little bit, but I just didn't look feminine at all. Like my, my jawline, my nose and my brow bone, like every, pretty much every feature of me that was visible outwardly looked like, I looked like just about any other boy my age, except I was pretty short. I'm five foot three, five foot four. So, um, so it was, it was really, it was pretty shameful for me. Um, realizing that I miss being feminine like that, and um, I would secretly buy like makeup and skirts and dresses, and just kind of wear it in the comfort of my room. I never really told anybody about it because it was it was very shameful for me. And um, I started to withdraw a little bit, um, and just kind of spend all my time in my room, um, either just like dressing up or like drawing or using like either either clothing or both my art and and clothing as just a means of I guess you'd say expressing myself um without anybody really knowing and you know I would spend a lot of my time playing video games basically just distracting myself from from the anguish that I was in um were you able to talk to anybody about what you were going through at this point? Was there any therapists that were offered uh, by the doctors or the physicians at this time? And, and did your parents know, or were you keeping this from them? Um, I mean, I never really... I didn't even know how to address it because I didn't think that, I mean, transitioning, that there was, that there was a chance that I could even be wrong. I felt... You know, when I initially started with uh, pretty much every step of transitioning, it felt like the phrase they use is euphoric. I had gender euphoria when, you know, when I cut my hair, when I bought bought boys clothes and I started on testosterone and started to see all the changes and start to actually look like a boy. And it felt like, you know, I had control over myself and that this is really what I was supposed to be. And it felt great. So, and you know, the, the way that they present transition is like the, like this one size fits all thing that works for everybody who's dysphoric. I mean, I, I can really fathom that it was the wrong thing, especially because I had invested so much time into it and I didn't even look like a girl anymore. And I never thought I would ever again. So I never thought like there would be any point in, in stopping for all sorts of reasons right and um you know i was i genuinely believed myself to be the boy and everybody around me knew me as leo as their their son their brother their their nephew so it was it was a very difficult idea to come to terms with but it wasn't until i had that class and i had that lesson and it really hit me what I what I had what what's been taken away from me mm -hmm. that I realized like this is not right. Um, 
one night I realized like it was every single step of this was wrong and it should not have been allowed to happen. I regretted everything. And um, before, sometimes I would talk about talk online about like, oh, I, I hate how I how I look. I wish I wish I could stop looking like this. And I basically and um, it wasn't until that point, though, that I realized like this is transition regret mm. that I'm experiencing. And how old were you at this point? And um, at first, 16. It Six, was 16. 11 months after my surgery. Yeah. And um, the first person I talked to, I, I called a friend of mine to basically cry over the phone about it. And then I texted my mom about it. I didn't want her to like hear my crying voice or like see, see like a tear streaming down my face. I, it, it was, it was a hard thing to, to talk about and comes come in terms with, there was a lot of shame. I mean, like it was this thing that, I mean, the whole family has been involved in for so long, and it was it was all for nothing, basically. And I felt like I let everybody down, and I didn't want everybody to see how much distress I was in. So there was there was a lot of there was a lot of shame and guilt in this. Um, there was a period of time where I just didn't really, maybe like a for about a week after that night. But I just didn't really do anything. I just kind of like laid in bed all day, just stayed in my room and never really did anything. Um, the only thing really keeping me going, I think, was um, my parents like coming to check in on me every now and then. I mean, letting me know that they when that they were going to take care of me and that they they they'd bring me food to my door and stuff. Um, but after that, I, you know, I started. I wasn't really um, really involved with the outside world by this point. Um, I mean, the COVID measures had basically like destroyed like all of my all my friendships, and I didn't really have anybody. Just just the internet, really. And I would start talking about like my transition regret on my personal social media, and I actually got a lot of a lot of flack for it from other transgender individuals. They would they would say things like. Oh, you're harming the the transgender community by by talking about this. You're going to prevent people who really need this treatment from getting it. And uh, sometimes they would get really mean. Like they would say, like, "Oh, doesn't it hurt? Doesn't it hurt to be like this? This is this is such a stupid decision. Like you were you weren't a little kid. You should have known exactly what you were doing to yourself. Things like that. Yeah, thirteen. That's not, not a very kid. nice. Chloe, I hate to interrupt you. Uh, this is the point of the show. We have some sponsors who actually uh, put this show on the air. First and foremost, ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. 40% off the bundle package for the holiday season right now. That is the adjustable base and the mattress combined together. Comes with a super sleek remote. Uh, also offers a split king in case your loved one uh, wants to sleep while you stay up. Uh, go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros today uh, to get that deal. Also, we've got 30% off mattresses there. When you get a mattress, you get two free luxury pillows with it. Some of the best uh, mattress products you will ever find 
uh, in the United States, in my opinion. They've also got sheets. They've got a cover. They've got weighted blankets there. Fill up the cart as high as it'll go. Type in the promo code Drinking Bros at checkout for 30% off at ghostbed.com forward slash Drinking Bros. And when you check out at the bottom of the page, you're going to see a 60-month pay-as-you-go program. No interest as long as you have decent credits. All the deals that I mentioned are applicable with that. So if you check that box... You can walk out of there with a brand new bedroom set for about 25 bucks a month. Head on over to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros today. Next up, we got mybookie.com. Promo code drinking bros doubles your first deposits all the way up to $1,000. College bowl season is right around the bend and NFL is in the playoff hunts. Plenty to bet on. Uh, to turn your love of sports into your new side hustle, head on over to mybookie.com. Use promo code DRINKINGBROS to double that first deposit all the way up to $1,000. Again, that is promo code DRINKINGBROS at mybookie.com. Uh, go ahead and pop that in, and you will double your deposit all the way up to $1,000. Bet on anything, anytime, from anywhere at mybookie.com. Uh, next up. We've got Babbel. This holiday season, if you're looking for a unique gift that inspires curiosity, travel, and culture, give the gift of Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that has sold more than 10 million subscriptions, and thanks to Babbel's addictively fun, easy size bite language lessons, you can finally be able to discover the wonder that comes with learning a new language. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps include AI and their lessons plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers. Speakers, not computers. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. There's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can also access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, Get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babble.com slash drinking bros. That's babble.com slash drinking bros for up to 55% off your subscription. Babble, a language for life. I mean, I remember being no. 13 year old, years old. I was a fucking moron. Yeah. Same. As a matter of fact, I was a moron until I was like 28, probably. And even now. Well, even degree. now it's questionable. Yeah. So I, this it's questionable for you. The scene that you're describing about, <clears throat> uh, you know, especially during the lockdown stuff. Um, the isolation and everything, uh, the warning that these medical professionals or so-called professionals gave your parents that, you know, social isolation and suicide were likely outcomes if you didn't get these treatments, hormones and surgery. Uh, it turns out it didn't fix any of that stuff, right? Um, the surgery mm-hmm. or the home and hormones. It was, and it brought, uh, brought on some other issues. Yeah. So thinking back on it now, I mean, you're, you're in adulthood now, uh, what would you have preferred had happened during that process from the time that you first had a conversation with your parents until, you know, stuff started happening? Yeah. And do you think there should be an age limit and it like, uh, kind of put in place? So I absolutely should not have been allowed to go through this as a kid. Um, I think the minimum age should at least be 18 because I mean, no kid, no child is able to really, even if you fully inform them, which they didn't even, they gave me 
pretty vague consent forms, even if you give them like all the information available on this, they're just not going to be able to, they're just not going to be equipped with the worldly experience or um, knowledge or even the mental faculties to be able to decide something like this for themselves. So I, it was pretty irresponsible on the part of the medical professionals and um, the institutions that are promoting this for children. Um, and no kid should be able to go through this. I mean, they they asked me like some very adult questions, like things like, "Do you are you aware that this may affect your ability to have have children as an adult?" And I was like, I was thirteen at the time, so it was like, I don't want to have kids. I don't plan on having kids. Right. Because <laughs> I was just a kid. I, of course, I wasn't thinking about something like that. Yeah, but I think you you, you do you do understand. Uh, you know things like the future and consequences right it's just not being animated to you in, in a way from figures of authority that makes sense to you because they're trying yeah. to obfuscate all that because they want you to go in one direction mm -hmm. not so. only that but like kids kids are known for making rash decisions especially once they hit their teens i mean i mean a teenager's decision making skills are notoriously not the greatest like kids are just aren't really able to extrapolate that far yeah. So, and, um, so thinking back on what you went through at that period, what what do you think? What would it have taken to uh, stop you from making these mistakes? Do you think, like, I mean, friend groups or parents or maybe somebody in the medical community to say, "Hey, you're a child." Obviously, those are things. But like, from, I mean, from your perspective, what do you think you were missing during that period, vis-a-vis -vis somebody giving you all the information or perspective or whatever it happens to be? Or could could they do that at 13 years old? I mean, thinking back on it, Dan, 13, I think, is seventh grade. Um, and look, middle it's school great. is, yeah, it's it's hard enough on its own. Sure, uh, yeah. But I mean, you know, it's like, do you want to play baseball or be a cheerleader or go to fucking summer camp? Right. Those are decisions that you have to make sometimes. They're low-level decisions, but you still are informed in some way or another and, you know, <laughs> pushed pushed in one regard, I guess, but... What what do you think it would have been from an adult specifically that would have stopped this shit from happening? Um, I mean, they say that most children who are dysphoric or identify as the opposite sex actually, um, anywhere from about like sixty to ninety percent of the time, they naturally desist by the time that they're an adult. So, I mean, seeing as the treatment didn't work out for me, obviously, I would have naturally desisted over time. Um, but I kind of wish that somebody told me, like, you know, I was, like I said, I was a bit of a tomboy and I had some body image issues. I kind of wish there was somebody, especially like a woman who was there for me to kind of like explain, like, this is like a normal experience. Like, this is just like how it is growing up as a woman. And you're not, you're not any different from other girls your age. and you'll be just fine and you don't you don't need to change anything about yourself because you're fine just the way you are and gender shouldn't really be the focus of your identity either like what's i kind of wish somebody had like i do wish i had like a little more structure as a kid like i i kind of like spent a lot of my time like playing video games or drawing and it never like really went any anywhere productive and um 
I kind of wish somebody told me like what you contribute to your community and your family is so much more important than your gender or your sex. Did your mom not impress upon you what would happen and what you would lose uh, transitioning to a man at that age? Um, I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't think that discussion was, was really, really had. And I mean, what about the doctors? Did the doctors try to impress that upon you? No, no, they, they did not. No, it was like, oh, you, you are, you are, you are what you say you are basically. And they were just willing to uh, race my, you my through mom. this process. Yeah. I can't really blame my parents because, I mean, they were told, like, they were given this lie. They were given so many lies by the doctors. Man, uh, it's sorry. Forgive me. This is a, just an absolutely insane story to me. Um, uh, when did you decide that you were going to sue the physicians? Um. Just this year, actually, um, it's been about um, about a year and a half since I've detransitioned and I've stopped taking testosterone. Um, that was in May of last year, and um, you know, at first, like I was talking about my my transition regret on my personal social media, and I got shut down for it. And I wait, I'm sorry, I did, you, you said I, you I did got, stop talking about it for a while. You got shut down by Instagram. They like banned you or something. What do you Facebook, mean? Facebook, yeah. Mm, not, not, no, not, not like I wasn't like banned from platforms or anything. But I was like, I gave into social pressure mm. from other transgender individuals. <clears throat> um, I was called things like transphobe or turf or bigot or things like that, and I was told like I was harming a whole community of people, and I. I didn't want to do that and I didn't want to face the backlash that I was getting. I wasn't strong enough at that at that point in time to really face that and so I just shut up. But at the same time I was also involved in communities of other people who um online would talk about their experiences of regarding their transition and stopping their transitions permanently and um you know I started to realize like I'm I'm not alone in this experience. This is happening just about everywhere to a lot of different people who are transitioning you know like all all of us truly believe that we were we were one sex or the other and we did experience gender dysphoria i still experience it to this day and yet transition didn't work out for us and when we a lot of us expressed that when we when we've spoken out about it we've gotten a lot of backlash and i started to realize like This is not okay. Like mm, mm. this is something that's that's happening and it's being shut down. And it's it's a very real thing. Yeah, and it's not just happening to and kids I, either. I mean, pretty recently. I can't shut up about it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't yeah. I'm I'm glad you're it's very uh it's very admirable what you're doing now. Uh and what I was gonna say is it's not just children that this is happening to. Uh there's a retired Navy SEAL that you may have heard of, Chris Beck, um yeah. who yeah. transitioned and has since detransitioned and He's kind of on a speaking tour right now. He was a he was a DevGrew operator, SEAL Team Six, mm -hmm. like a tier one, one of, one of the best gunfighters in the world, and um, you know, went to the to the VA, right, like the post military healthcare service to get treated, and he got pushed through the same bullshit that you did, right, by as a grown man got pushed. So it's 
yeah, I, I encourage you not to think less of yourself for making uh, mistakes like this because it can happen to a lot of people when they're psychologically, uh, uh, I guess, compromised like that. And what we it's what, happening to the most vulnerable. Sure, yeah. I mean that th- this is this is a very predatory behavior we see in the medical community in the United States right now. Yeah, and is this the first lawsuit uh, from somebody your age who uh, decided to go? you know, at 13 years old, go through this uh, and then sue the physicians? Because to my knowledge, I haven't heard of another case. Um, I mean, it's the only one I, I know of. I don't know if it's the first or if any others have gone through and if there's been like any successful suits in this area. But I'm hoping that by, <laughs> by doing this, I can create a precedent um, to help other people um, see in this situation seek justice for themselves and also to hopefully scare any other doctors or therapists out of doing this to children because well i don't think a fully informed and mentally healthy adult should be completely barred from from doing this this is absolutely not for kids it's not for children at all yeah, it's an adult decision. And it should I, stay that way. I 100% agree. Um, and I think right now, what you're seeing in social media and uh, even in advertising, uh, what's going on is it feels like they're pushing more and more children into this. Uh, even that Adidas commercial where you know it's about the trans kids playing soccer, mm. and they're all you know <clears throat> they they appear to be 13 to 15 years old, and you see them all out there. It seems like they're trying to normalize this for children for some reason. And I don't really understand who's to benefit from this. Um, I would say the pharmaceutical companies, the doctors, and especially the surgeon, because the surgeries are what make the most money. I mean, there's these gender-affirming surgeons who make millions a year off of, off of doing this. Got it, got it. I didn't even think either, about either that. Either through sex or retirement surgeries or they call it top surgeries, which really that means either mastectomies or breast augmentations. Yeah, sure. And think, think about how uh, banal that description is top surgery. Mm-hmm. It's, it's meant to take any of the offense out yep. of the act intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's is, a euphemism. Yeah. And even in the way they described the, the surgery to me, it was kind of like, it really felt like it was watered down to make it more digestible to me as a 15-year-old kid. Very anesthetic, antiseptic, yeah. Yeah. You, like, you don't want to, like, oh, well, I'm sorry, what'd you say? It's never, they never use rough language like that. Or because, invasive terms, yeah. But, because yeah. they're predators. Mm-hmm. That's what predators do. What does a surgery like this cost, uh, on average? Um, I'm not sure about the exact cost. I mean, pretty much every major step of my medical transition was... Actually, all of it was covered by by insurance. I mean, that's that's law here in California. Um, gender affirming. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Forgive treatments. me. Treatments. Yeah, um, they're all required to be covered by insurance. Seeing by about law. between four thousand and twenty four thousand dollars. <throat> okay. Um, man, on children, that's uh, it, it's absolute in, insanity to me. Uh, so that is a law in California that it is covered by healthcare. Yeah. 
Is it like that in any other state? I can't think of one, Dan. Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be, I a, think that'd be a federal situation. And, and uh, from the insurance provider's perspective, that would be considered a pre-existing condition, which under Obamacare, you can't not treat. Right? Okay. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, I think there's a few other states with this law, but... Well, there's some states, I think the law is the standard and, the, and other states have laws that prevent it from happening, right? Like Texas, for example, has a law that doctors that try to even encourage this stuff to children, whether their parents are present or not, are committing a felony, right? Yeah. Which is the appropriate way to handle that situation. And in no way <clears throat> should anybody, especially on unsettled science, which this is, actually, I guess at this point, we're kind of getting settled in the science because as she has already said 60 to 90 percent of people detransition depending on which studies uh, uh you look at and which groups of people you're talking about children yeah children, children yeah. yeah so it's like we, we we kind of do know what's happening here mm -hmm. um and for you personally have you reached out to any other kids who were going through the same situation that you're going through um i mean at the time that i started speaking publicly about it um there weren't really nearly as many voices on this topic, like of people who had gone through the same thing and especially not of other, other minors. Like when I first started speaking out, it was like, it was all adults who had been through this all, all like well into their twenties, thirties, forties. But then eventually after a few months of being involved in this conversation, I guess you could say, um, I started having some people who transitioned as minors reaching out to me. And the number is increasing. Yeah, and, and, and what was their response? Um, because I would imagine uh, they're just looking for somebody to talk to just like any other kid. Uh, and finally, they have somebody that they've seen on television or heard in a podcast. And maybe they watched or listened to and said, you know what? That's exactly what I'm going through. Uh, what's the response been from them? What do you mean? Uh, as far as the, the children reaching out to you, like other kids asking about the same shared experience, um, are they asking what it would be like to transition back? Are they asking uh, what your feelings were, what you were going through at the time? How are most of these conversations going? Um, I think we all noticed like a lot of our experiences were very, very similar and very, very eerily similar, actually. Um, there was a girl who reached out to me who is pretty much only recently detransitioned this year. She, um, after only a few months after getting a mastectomy, she realized she regretted it and that she's, it's caused her a lot of pain. And she was, she's, she's around my age, actually. She just turned 18 and she had the mastectomy, I believe at or around 16, just a year after I, I got mine. Wow. So there is a lot of there is a lot of similarities. It's it's scary. So uh, final thoughts here. What would you recommend uh, for for children who are considering this? Uh, obviously, to wait um, until they're eighteen. But um, what would you say that you've learned that you could pass on? That would be the biggest thing that that has affected you as a person going through the situation. I mean, it might sound like very generic advice, and I know that it might be a very painful thing thing to hear, but the best thing to do really is to wait until you're old enough to 
be able to make this decision for yourself. And that doesn't necessarily mean like turning 18 and then immediately starting your transition. Sometimes it takes even longer to determine whether this is the right thing for yourself. I mean, this affects medical transition affects every single area of your health, whether it be reproductive or general. I mean, I, one of the side effects of testosterone that still affects me to this day and hasn't really gotten much better is unfortunately I've, um, I've had some urinary tract issues. Like after about a year of being on testosterone, I started getting like UTIs and even, I'm sorry for how graphic this is, but like sometimes like blood. Yeah. In in my urine, and um, I've had other issues like um, like it's it's like my body doesn't really hydrate itself very well, so I have to use the restroom right quite frequently. And this is like a huge quality of life issue that I didn't even know could happen to me. And you know, they put all these put all these side effects on the consent forms, and it's not even not only is it not a comprehensive list of what can happen to you, but I mean, most of the kids going into this are like perfectly physically healthy before I was. And now I have issues with my health in, in areas that I didn't even know were, were possible. And not only that, but it also affects things like your your sexuality as an adult, how you experience like sexual pleasure and um, intimacy, and also your your fertility and the health of your reproductive organs. I... I started testosterone so young that I don't know if I'm going to be able to, even if I can conceive, I don't know if I'll be able to safely carry it a term. And as a kid, this isn't something that you really think about and you're not really equipped to make that kind of decision. I mean, you might think now that you don't really want to have children, but I mean, most people, a lot of people don't even know that they want to have children until they're in their 20s or even their 30s or 40s or even after they've lost their ability to have kids and so it's certainly not a decision that kids are able to make um and there's there's a lot of things that transition affects that you don't really even think about like and that aren't really talked about especially amongst kids like it does affect like your your dating pool and um, like who's attracted to you, who you're able to to date and get in a relationship with. And I found that um you know, I was I was still attracted to I've always been attracted to to men. And this didn't change while I was going through the transition process. And it kind of sucked because, you know, I didn't really have much of a much in the way of a dating pool. And I kind of watched like all my friends my age get into relationships. And I just kind of that's I just kind of missed out on that sort of development throughout high school. And it was, it was pretty, it was a very stressful thing to go through. I, I, um, I also found that like the few people who were attracted to me, um, who were boys, I mean, there are, there are a few girls who had crushes on me, but I, I, I didn't really have any interest in them, but the few boys who were attracted to me were very, um, and, and knew that I was that I was transgendered. It it was very, it felt very very sexually motivated, almost like a fetish, and that I wasn't really like a like a person to them. And so that's something that a lot of transgender pe- people face in the dating world, unfortunately. And there's a lot of things that 
you don't really think about when you when you first go into this and the way that you will feel about your transition will change over the course of a year over the course of two years three years five years a decade several decades and it won't always be euphoric it won't there is a bit of a honeymoon period with each stage and um it it does go away after some time and life will kind of in other areas probably go back to normal or be adversely affected by transition in ways that you don't even realize and so the best thing to do is to wait for when when you're an adult and when you're really able to make this kind of decision on your own yeah you're going to run into a lot of assholes and to make sure that you're you're right it's probably a good idea to not uh, worry too much about what other people think about you yeah. Um, thank you for being here today, uh, Chloe. Um, I think that the term brave is uh, thrown, around, thrown around loosely a lot these days. Uh, in your case, though, it certainly does apply. Um, uh, your story is incredible. Thank you for sharing. I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, uh, it's difficult, it's hard, and uh, to receive this much media attention, um, I'm, I'm sure people aren't very kind to you online, but I, I think what you're doing is important. And I think it could help a lot of kids out there who are in a similar situation, uh, as to you. Typically this is the, the end of the show where you get to the drinking bro of the week, which, which is somebody who inspires you or helps you become the person you are today. Uh, since you aren't of drinking age, I'm actually going to give it to you. Um, because again, what you're doing, I think is incredibly important. It is brave. Uh, and the gauntlet of, of, uh, media that you're going through to get your story out to the world is, uh, something a lot of people wouldn't do your age, uh, and, and especially what has happened to you. So thank you for being here today. And thank you for sharing your story. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, for Chloe Cole, uh, D'Anthony, D'Anthony Holloway, I'm Ross Patterson. This is the drinking bros podcast. Good night, everyone.